welcome to the Proelium, which means the battle. The Joshua Lectures are an extension of New Antioch's classical education model. The intent of these lectures is to expose a larger audience to the understanding of the Lordship of Christ over all spheres of life. These lectures aim to address various topics within the disciplines of theology, philosophy, education, medicine, law, and ethics. Classical education engages these topics in a robust manner with an eye upon the cultural landscape and a mind transformed by the scriptures. For a reformation of today's vocations and institutions, Christians must be courageous and equipped to evoke real change for Christ. To be courageous without being equipped leads to defeat. To be equipped without possessing courage leads to disaster. New Antioch extends an invitation to you to come and experience these lectures in person. Each presenter approaches their topic with a substantial background of experience and or formal training in their particular discipline and endeavors to provide a careful and rigorous application of the Christian faith to life. Each evening's lectures will afford those in attendance the opportunity to ask questions of the guest lecturer through a moderated Q&A period following the presentation. If you would like more information, please email us at admin at newantiochinstitute.com. which we are medically transitioning and uh, sterilizing, uh, medicalizing children who are confused about their gender, how we arrive at the place in which <clears throat> the most uh, debauched sort of sexual practices are being mainstreamed and celebrated, where a shop teacher in Ontario can wear uh, enormous prosthetic breasts, clearly a, a, a fetishistic sort of um, behavior, and yet be uncorrected by the school board out there. Uh, so many different examples could be given of how we are on the slippery slope to Sodom, and we... Uh, we considered in those lectures both how we arrived at this place, but also soberingly where things could progress. And I spent some of the time in that last lecture making an argument for the fact that I believe within my lifetime, within the next 5, 10, maybe 20 years, that pedophilia uh, may very well be celebrated and accepted the way that currently um, other sexually immoral practices are, uh, are being celebrated. We are going to turn our attention now to, the, to a couple of very present contemporary uh, topics, ones that I think that we, we, we really do need to address in ways that are biblically faithful uh, and that are also uh, apologetically sensitive. And by apologetically sensitive, I don't mean like so much of our world thinks that 
We need to downplay God's word. But we do need to be able to understand uh, what we need to be able to understand our world and speak winsomely to it uh, while, yeah, while being able to present that, that truth in ways that accord with uh, not only God's truth, but also what we find in our experience and in the world. And of course, if we start with scripture, that is a surefire way to get the rest right. Uh, I'm going to say a few more things about that in the introduction uh, to the next lecture. Uh, but for now, what we want to do in, uh, as we deal with what is called sexual orientation here in this, uh, at the outset here, and then next week with our two lectures, we'll be dealing with what is called gender identity. So this week, sexual orientation, I'm going to deal with the biblical side of things in this first lecture, and then I'm going to move into the peer-reviewed uh, literature, uh, kind of the empirical, an empirical look at sexual orientation in the, uh, in the next lecture. Now, I use the word sexual orientation with some hesitation, and I'm going to be speaking <clears throat> more about this in the next lecture, but I, I want to <clears throat> at least give you a taste of, of this uh, right here at the beginning. <clears throat> I don't like the word or the phrase sexual orientation. Um, I, I'll use it hesitantly because it's a word that our world uses or, or a phrase that our world uses and they mean something by it and it's, it's common and so at times I feel like I'm forced to use it. Um, but what we'll see in the next lecture is that that phrase sexual orientation really connotes things that are not true about sexuality, about our design and about how it has gone wrong in the world. And so, um, and so when we deal with uh, homosexuality, sexual orientation, it's important that we understand those the right way. And we're going to begin to build that foundation in this lecture, but then uh, I'll say some more about that in the next. So what I want to do uh, in this lecture is to take a look at several passages in scripture that speak about homosexuality and build out a framework for how we should understand uh, homosexual behavior as sin. And, um, and then also make some finer distinctions about the kind of language we should use concerning homosexuality. And um, yeah, and then we'll, we'll see what we get time for at the end. I might uh, get into, might, might put off some things and leave it for the next lecture. But I want you to start by turning with me to a passage that we have um, looked at several times in this series. Uh, it is the kind of the archetypal normative pattern for marriage that, uh, that we ought to know very well. It's Genesis chapter 2, verses 24 to 25. We want to start there. Genesis chapter 2, verses 24 to 25. And once again, I will read that. Genesis 2, 24 to 25. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. So to review some of um, some previous thoughts from these lectures, it is important to understand that what is being said here in these verses is instructive in its pattern. It is not merely descriptive. It is not merely 
at a historical description of God's creation of the first man and the first woman, and that they came together in marriage and in sexual union. It is a archetypal normative pattern that is meant to instruct us about what marriage is and the morality, the ethics of that relationship. So there is a phrase that is sometimes bandied about that I actually don't like. Uh, I, I tend to be quite sensitive to comments that are glib or that could be seen to be demeaning. Um, and, and I understand that there might be others who are not quite as sensitive as I am to these things. But the, the phrase that I, I've sometimes heard from Christians is that uh, God created Adam and Eve, not Adam and Steve. And again, I, I think I, I kind of, I don't like this, that, that, that statement. But here's the, here, the reality is this, is that it's fundamentally correct. I don't like the way it presents, but it's fundamentally correct that the fact that God made Adam and Eve for one another, and then in also in another way, woman for man, uh, that this is something that instructs us about the nature of sexual union in such a way that it precludes homosexual intercourse. Um, as much as I might not like that statement, it is fundamentally right in that it teaches the normativity of this uh, of sexual union within marriage. We've also spoken about the fact that previously that male and female are not just a pair, not just a differentiated pair, but they are dyadic in how they face one another in an exclusive complementarity. Right? They, they, Adam and Eve together in sexual union um, puts everything else aside. It, that, that, is, that is the nature of marriage. It is the nature of sexual union. And it excludes every other union that would lie outside of that normative pattern. So it is not surprising then when Jesus teaches on marriage that he draws from this passage. And um, and so because this was the, again, the accepted instructional pattern for all of, um, you know, for all of Judaism prior, when Jesus speaks about marriage in these terms, he is, even though he does not mention homosexuality in particular, he is ruling out homosexuality. It simply does not fit the creational design, the good design that God has created that has to do, as I have argued previously, it has to do with procreation, even if procreation does not always follow. It is inherently procreational in its function and design. So let's turn to a second passage here. So first of all, we've noted that there is an instructional normativity to this, uh, to this marriage passage here in Genesis 2. Let's turn to Genesis 19. Again, quite a well-known passage uh, to Christians about the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. Now, many of you will know this passage that um, two angels come to fetch Lot out of Sodom. Uh, Lot 
Abraham's nephew had been living in this very wealthy part of, uh, of the world, this, this valley that was well watered. And, um, and this actually is an important part of the story. And, uh, and Abraham intercedes in chapter 18 for Lot and for, and for Sodom. And, you know, he, he gets, he sort of wrestles with God who has said, he's revealed to Abraham that he's going to destroy Sodom. And he says, well, listen, if there's even 10 people in Sodom that are righteous, will you destroy the entire city? And, and the Lord um, says that he won't. Uh, the sad reality is that when it comes time to rescue the righteous from uh, from Sodom, that, that, you know, that, uh, that number is down to three. Uh, very, very sad. And it really is a testimony, even though Lot is called a righteous man in the New Testament. We need to wrestle seriously with that. Uh, yet he was, he was not an influentially uh, righteous man. Uh, or maybe you say a righteously influential man. I'm not sure what, which, which way. But he... Um, he did not have an impact on, on Sodom. And in fact, his, uh, his own sons-in-law perished, as did his wife. But this story um, goes that as these angels come to Sodom, that Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. What that means is that Lot has a position, uh, ironic in light of what I just finished saying, but he has a position of influence within the city. But he, doesn't, he actually doesn't have a moral influence on the city. Um, and these two men come in and, um, he says, you know, he offers hospitality, which is, which is righteousness in that culture. A very important part of doing justice in that culture is to take care of those who are traveling, who may be vulnerable to violence. And he says, you know, come, come, come into my house. They go, no, 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 we're okay to spend the night in the town square. And then He's, he pressed them strongly, it says, verse 3, Genesis 19, verse 3. And that's sort of an ominous sign that, no, you better get out of the, the city square because something's going to happen. Something bad's going to happen if you stay here. Uh, and what we find out is that the men of the city surround Lot's house and demand that the men come out so that they may lie with them or know them. That's sexual euphemism. Uh, Lot defends them and says, no, don't, don't do this, this wicked thing. Um, and, uh, he even offers his daughters. I'm not going to make a some, so much of a comment on that, but, um, he, and, and eventually they, you know, they, they try to, they want, they're willing to, to, to do violence against Lot and rape these men. Um, and so what you see is widespread sexual violence that is of a homosexual nature in this passage. Now, this passage has come under significant, um, yeah, there's, there's been challenges that have been offered due to the traditional interpretation of this passage. Uh, and some of that challenge has, uh, goes like this, that the sin here in Sodom is not homosexuality. Uh, it's not about, you know, two men in a loving marriage, um, you know, having, you know, having that sexual union in, in the marriage. And of course, even I'm framing it in a way that's very charitable. Um, two homosexual men cannot have sexual union. Uh, they can engage in sexual acts. They actually cannot have sexual union. Um, nor is their union, no matter what the, you know, the, our legal world would say or the state would say, it's, it's, not, it's not a marriage. 
Uh, so I'm being a little bit charitable in my presentation of that. But that's the way it is, it is argued. There's a revision, uh, revisionist sort of perspective on this passage. So let's take a look at a couple of passages. We always want to interpret Scripture in light of Scripture. Um, and so turn with me, first of all, to Ezekiel 16, verse 48. Ezekiel 16, verse 48. This passage is often appealed to by, by the revisionists, the um, yeah, the, what we might call the homosexual apologists. And, and if you're not already aware, I, I should make it clear, some of you will already know, uh, that this kind of revisionism is taking place within the church, like within evangelical churches. Okay, So this is, this is a very important issue for us um, within, the, within the larger church. But it says in verse 48 here, <clears throat> As I live, declares the Lord God, your sister Sodom and her daughters have not done as you and your daughters have done. So there's a comparison. Israel is being told that they're actually worse than Sodom. Behold, this was the guilt of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters had pride, excess of food, and prosperous ease, but did not aid the poor and needy. They're haughty and did an abomination before me. So I removed them when I saw it. And the revisionists will argue that, listen, it's very clear here that the sin of Sodom was not homosexuality, but pride, excess of food, and prosperous eed, that they did not aid the poor and the needy. All right. Now, there is a, there, it's important for us to recognize that there is some significant truth to this perspective, that, uh, that this was part of the sin of Sodom, and that, uh, in fact, we would recognize from a larger view of sin and how it operates, that when you begin to give yourself to excess and um, in, in, in certain areas, that it will lead to sin and excess in other areas. This word abomination, however, is a key word that we'll come back to when we take a look at another passage in Leviticus. But this passage does not, certainly does not rule out homosexuality as an aspect of the sins of Sodom. Uh, let's take a look at one other passage here in Jude verse 6. Near the very end of the New Testament, Jude Verse six. Now, there's also, as some of you will know, um, a lot of parallel between the book of Jude and the book of Second Peter, and there is some um, reference to Sodom in Second Peter, but Jude is is clearer, and it says in verse six here, and the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling. He has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day, just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. So here it is very clear that if you interpret scripture with scripture, that the writers of the New Testament see that uh, even though the, uh, the homosexual 
sins of Sodom had a particularly violent and grievous um, uh, aspect to it in this, in this one uh, occasion that, that homosexuality is what partly what, what Sodom was destroyed for. Uh, these unnatural desires, they, this indulging in sexual immorality. Interestingly, there is a connection here between the angels who did not stay with their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling. And um, I believe, and, and this is a matter of theological conjecture, uh, but I believe that's actually referring to the events of Genesis chapter 6, in which the sons of God cohabit with women. And I believe that those are fallen angels. You may, that's, uh, uh, other theologians may, may differ, and uh, that's, that's fine. But I believe that that's, uh, you start to put these passages together, I think that that is what comes out. So, clearly, homosexual practice is prohibited in Scripture. You have these, it doesn't fit the normative pattern of Genesis, where it occurs in, uh, later on in Genesis, in Sodom, it is punished. Uh, it is not merely that this was a, you know, a, a, a gang rape, a homosexual gang rape, it, but, but that homosexuality was more broadly, this pursuing of unnatural desire was seen as, um, as sin and something that called for punishment. Let's turn now to a third passage, um, third main, main passage at least, uh, and that is Leviticus chapter 18. And here the Lord is giving instructions to his people Israel that they might maintain holiness in light of the fact that their God is a holy God. And um, it is especially important for the Lord to speak clearly about these matters because of the fact that um, Israel is... Short, you know, relatively shortly, within a generation, going to be entering Canaan. And Canaan, uh, the Canaanites engaged in many of these same practices, and God wants to be very clear that they are, that the Israel, his people, are not to follow Canaanite practices. So I'm going to read from Leviticus 18, uh, from verse 19. You shall not approach a woman to uncover her nakedness while she is in her menstrual uncleanness. And you shall not lie sexually with your neighbor's wife and so make yourself unclean with her. You shall not give any of your children to offer them to Moloch and so profane the name of your God, I am the Lord. You shall not lie with a male as with a woman. It is an abomination. And you shall not lie with any animal and so make yourself unclean with it. Neither shall any woman give herself to an animal to lie with it. It is perversion. Do not make yourselves unclean by any of these things, for by all these nations I am driving out before you have become unclean. And the land became unclean so that I punished its iniquity, and the land vomited out its inhabitants. But you shall keep my statutes and my rules, and do none of these abominations, either the native or the stranger who sojourns among you. For the people of the land who were before you did all these abominations so that the land became unclean. Now I want you to notice several things in this passage um, relative to homosexual practice. 
The first is that uh, it is called an abomination, and it is uh, in, a, in, a, in another passage in chapter 20, it is punishable by death. Uh, we may turn there here in a second. Uh, what I also want you to note, however, is that it is not the only thing which is called an abomination. So uh, it seems to be, I mean, I'm not sure if I should use the word singled out or not, but it is uh, the word abomination is connected to it in a particular way in verse 22. But then in verse 24 and following, all the things that were previously mentioned are together all called abominations. And so um, I think this is helpful for us because if it wasn't already clear in Scripture, homosexual practice is sin. It is a serious sin. Uh, and yet, it would, I think, help us to understand how we ought to speak about homosexuality, especially in this day and age in which there is tremendous sensitivity about it. And even though on, uh, I think, for the most part, Christians do not preach strongly enough against homosexuality as far as sin, yet uh, there is a need, too, for biblical balance in how we speak about homosexuality and not singling it out as being the only abomination when it comes to sexual sin. So, for instance, <clears throat> this, the uh, <clears throat> homosexual apologists within the church will sometimes point out you know, listen, some of you conservatives, you traditionalists, you're, you know, you're always talking about the, the sin or the abomination of homosexuality, but you never talk about the abomination of, of adultery. And, and there's some serious truth to that. Uh, a, a, a nugget of truth, not, you know, not to, um, not to whitewash what the scriptures say about homosexuality as being a serious sin. But... Clearly, um, adultery is, is a sin, and, and all these things are called abominations. Notice that in verse 19, that having sexual union with a woman when she is menstrually unclean is also an abomination. And I believe that that uh, prohibition holds. I, I, don't, I personally do not believe that prohibition has been overturned in the Old Testament. Um, and so I, I think that preachers and as well as all of us in our witness, we have to have the right balance. We need to speak the way the scriptures speak and contain that, that balance that we find in scripture with its language. We need to speak strongly against homosexual behavior, same-sex sexual behavior as sin before God. We also need to speak strongly against Adultery, fornication, all these other aspects uh, of sin as well. And, um, you know, I don't, you know, you might say, well, there's not a lot of passages that talk about this. You, you know, you'd be preaching through the New Testament and, and rarely come across this. But I, I rarely hear a pastor ever mention anything about um, the sexual immorality of, uh, of sexual union when a woman is, is menstruating. So there is, there is, we need to get it right. We need to get we need to get it right with courage, but we also need to get it right with the balance of what we find in Scripture. Um, 
So among the other, some other things in the Old Testament called abomination would, in, would include idolatry. It's called an abomination. Unclean animals are actually called an abomination. Um, just this whole category of animals, they're abominations. Um, the offering of unblemished animals is called an abomination. Witchcraft and sorcery are called abominations. Cross-dressing is called an abomination. So my, my preference, and this is, this is just an area of pastoral counsel. I'll leave it with you to uh, think about. My personal approach is that I will speak very strongly against same-sex sexual behavior as sin. Uh, I do not use the word abomination just because of the fact that you could, but, the, but you would need to use it in a balanced way. You would want to use that then above all these other things as well. Um, and so I don't tend to call homosexuality an abomination, although I will mention as we turn to the New Testament, some other language that may be, um, may be more useful uh, when it comes to the particular kind of sin that, um, that same-sex sexual behavior may be. Um, so let's turn now to the New Testament, Romans chapter 1. So here in Romans chapter 1, we have this um, description from the Apostle Paul of the pagan nations being given over to their idolatry, to the results of their idolatry, to their suppression of the truth that is written on their hearts, even though they haven't heard the gospel, they haven't heard, they, they don't have the law as pagans. And, and that pagan context, I think, is somewhat important for understanding um, what Paul says here about homosexuality. Uh, I'm going to read from verse 24. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what, not to, what ought not to be done. Uh, and then it gives a list of, of many different sins that, that are a progression uh, of this giving over to sinful desire. I, if I'm I think it's a list of 21 things, or at least that number comes to mind. Somebody can count and let me know if I'm wrong or right. But um, So a few things need to be said about this passage. First of all, I believe this is ironclad when it comes to the question of whether or not uh, homosexuality is sin. And I've had opportunity to speak with um, sort of some, some homosexual apologists that uh, you know, claim to adhere to the scriptures, and, uh, and none of their arguments go very far. Um, there's a few reasons why this seems to be so ironclad to me, and, well, I just think it, it's not, not just to me, it is ironclad, I think. Um, the first is that it, it specifies what natural relations are. 
and I've heard from people that have same-sex attraction, again, who are homosexual apologists, I've heard people look me in the eye and say uh, that you know, heterosexual relations aren't natural to me. And that may be true in an experiential sense in, in a very limited way. That may be true that according to how the fallen nature, original sin, has affected them personally, that they don't, that doesn't seem right to them. Uh, but the scriptures are exceptionally clear that heterosexual union is the only natural kind of, of sexual uh, behavior. And that to do likewise, that to do contrary to that is unnatural. Um, the other thing that's helpful here and just kind of makes this case ironclad is that it compares uh, men with men and women with women. And this, um, this helps clarify some of the arguments that some people have offered against um, kind of a traditional interpretation of the scripture's condemnation of homosexuality, which uh, will sometimes lean into the cultural expression of homosexuality, either in the Old Testament or in, um, you know, in these times in the ancient world with ancient Greece or ancient Rome. So there, of course, there are cultural expressions of, of sinful behaviors. <laughs> There's no question about it. So regarding the Old Testament, you'll often find male cult prostitutes. Um, and this is something that you find throughout the world, uh, throughout the ancient pagan world. Herodotus talks about this. Um, it's certainly the case that you would have male cult prostitutes. Uh, in, in sort of ancient Greece and ancient Rome, you would have um, pederasty. Now, it's not the only expression of homosexuality at that time, but it was a common expression where an older male would take a younger male, often just a, a young youth, and they, there'd be, an, it, and it was, it was accepted within that culture that um, it was all, yeah, it just seems so, so evil and wrong, but it was part of sort of the cultural um, bringing up of, of boys in that culture, that they would, that that, that man would, um, would, would sodomize the boy and they would have a relationship and it was seen as part of growing up for the boy. And especially uh, Sparta was particularly uh, renowned for this. So, you know, when we, you know, rejoice in the courage of the great Spartans against the, you know, against the Persian invasion, we, you know, we recognize along with that they were, they were pagans with all that meant and uh, the evils that occurred in, in that culture. So they're, they're very specific cultural expressions. And so sometimes this is used by the homosexual apologists to, to say, well, you know, we're not, we're talking about something different these days when it comes to, you know, gay marriage, for instance. Um, but the, this really is an ironclad case when it says, listen, whether it's women with women or it's, you know, it's male to males, we're not, we're not just talking about prostitution here. We're not just talking about pederasty here, um, you know, child sexual abuse. We're, we're talking about the full gamut of, uh, of these relations. And of course, um, yeah, let's take a look at one other passage that would help us to understand this. Let's turn to uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 6. 
1 Corinthians chapter 6. And I'll read from verse 9. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality. We'll come back to that. Nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor, drunken, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the spirit of our God. Now, this is a wondrous thing because we see here that, that Paul knew men who had been engaged in homosexuality. They had been saved out of that, that, that sin, that, that perversion, all right? Just as adulterers had been, just as thieves had been, just as drunkards had been, just as liars had been, just, had, just as idolaters had been. Um, this, the word here, uh, well, it's, it's more than one word. Um, what is translated here as men who practice homosexuality in the ESV is actually two Greek words, uh, malakoi and arsenikoite, I believe. Um, somebody can <laughs> correct me afterwards if my, if my Greek pronunciation is poor. Um, but what those two words refer to in the case of Malakoi, is the receptive partner. It, it, you know, the literal translation would probably be effeminate, um, but effeminate meaning um, the, the effeminate partner in, in a homosexual uh, relationship. Whereas uh, arsenikoite uh, would mean the... Uh, the, the active or insertive partner in that. And so it's, this is helpful to note. And in fact, it makes me wonder if potentially translators like the ESV here, and I'm, I, I'm not, I don't remember what each different translation does as far as how they choose to translate uh, this, this particular verse. But it makes me wonder if there's a bit of a missed opportunity to translate both words here. Um, because one thing that comes across when you realize that two words are used here is that Paul, I believe, was using, he understood the cultural context and the breadth of, of homosexuality in his culture, which, yes, looked somewhat different than in our culture, but he was using two words that tried to bring in the whole breadth of that practice. It wasn't just the, the, you know, the abuser, right? It wasn't just the pederast who, who as, a, as an older male, took the younger male. Um, so Paul's using the breadth of what he understands of his culture to, to say wholesale, this is... This is a sinful practice, just like other, you know, just like sexual immorality, just like idolatry, just like adultery, just like thieving, just like drunkenness, and and but 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 the gospel of Jesus Christ can change that. The gospel of Jesus Christ can change that, and he knew people 
who were in these categories, those who had been saved out of these particular sin and sinful sins and sinful categories. Um, I want to make one further cultural note here, and that is that even though the, uh, the homosexual practices of ancient Greece and Rome looked somewhat different, uh, you could even say quite a bit different um, than what we find today, uh, it has uh, homosexual apologists will often overemphasize that difference. Um, so for instance, there is very good cultural, uh, historical anthropology to demonstrate that, that eunuchs, those who are uh, called eunuchs, in many cultures was almost synonymous with homosexual. Um, and in fact, so um, one, one book that goes into this, I don't think it's a very well-known book, but um, by Peter Schultz called Eunuchs and Castrati, A Cultural History. Uh, he takes a look at, you know, a lot of different cultures of the ancient world and um, delves into who eunuchs were and who the castrati were and demonstrates that eunuchs were not always castrated, um, but they were often or usually engaged in homosexual practice. Um, so at times, eunuchs was, eunuch was used to refer to those who had been castrated, um, but at times it was also re referred to those who were engaged in homosexual practice. And so um, there's, there's quite a, a wide practice, a wider practice of homosexuality within ancient times than a lot of um, current apologists would like there to be uh, in trying to say, well, the Old Testament, you know, the, the New Testament, Old Testament, that's, you know, culture that's so much different than what we have right now. Uh, no, not really. So for, here's an example of that, that uh, Emperor Nero had a, had a young boy, well, how old was he? he I'll say a youth, uh, had a youth who was a slave and took him and, and fancied him and castrated him and actually married him and paraded him around as his wife. Um, everybody knew that he was male. It wasn't that he wasn't a sort of a transgender thing, but in that culture, you're, if you were castrated and effeminate, you were deemed to sort of be in the category of a, of a woman. Uh, and certainly that is how Nero used him. Um, so there was, there was such thing as, as homosexual marriages in ancient times, maybe not frequent and, and certainly a little different than what we have nowadays. But uh, again, it's, it's important to understand some of this cultural history uh, because it's often misrepresented and used as warfare uh, against what the scriptures clearly communicate about the sin of, uh, of homosexual behavior. But I just want to finish with the fact that 
and, and even if, there are any, if there's anyone listening to these, um, to these lectures, uh, maybe right now, maybe online after the fact, that, uh, that homosexual behavior is sin. You, you need to repent, as is any sexual practice that, that is not between a man and a woman in marriage. And that God gives power through the gospel of Jesus Christ to repent and to live faithfully. Um, at times, completely removing that same-sex attraction. At times, continuing to learn by the grace of God to, uh, to put to death the deeds of the body. To, um, to subject your desires to God's word through the trans- transformation of the spirit and the word. Uh, but God gives power to live the right way. Um, and, uh, and Paul experienced that uh, as he called people out of the Corinthian church. And we experience many examples of that today as well. The gospel is the power of God unto, salva- <coughs> unto salvation. Let's pray. Thank you for joining us for this episode of the Joshua Lectures series on sex, gender, and the image of God. You can find more lectures by going to newantiochinstitute.com and click on the tab Joshua Lectures or by finding us on iTunes or your favorite podcast platform by searching for Proelium. If you'd like to know more about New Antioch Institute, you can email us at admin at newantiochinstitute.com. Thanks very much. Take care.